This is the Brilliant Podcast. This is episode 77. And I am talking today with uh, Nathan June, who, for those of you who are not uh, familiar with him, is an anarchist who's been active for at least 10 years. Um, and mostly I know him through the context of NASN, the North American Academic uh, Anarchist Studies Network. Anarchist Studies Network, right, which is sort of an echo of a similar formation in England, for those of you who don't know, that puts out the lovely journal Anarchist Studies that is perhaps only findable at your local university. Um, hi, Nathan. How's it going? Hi. Good. How are you doing? Not bad. And I'm really, th I'm really thankful that you're joining me here because, as I just said to you before we started recording, uh, there is an incredible issue uh, of... of I guess really since the rise of social media where anarchists who don't share the same assumptions basically don't talk to each other. And as we don't share very many assumptions, um, uh, this is, this is a pleasure for me. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you for, for inviting me. This is great. I'm going to start our conversation with, uh, uh, the definition of what is anarchism from the NASA website. Uh-huh. We understand anarchism in general terms, as the practice of equality and freedom in every sphere of life, life conceived and lived without domination in any form. We understand this practice to belong not only to a better future, but to the here and now, where we strive to prefigure our ends and the means we choose to reach them. As such, anarchism is a distinct tradition with a specific history rooted in the aspirations and experiences of a particular working class movement. At the same time, it's a set of principles and possibilities that are the property of no one movement, no one thinker, and no one place or time. And I wanted to read that because, um, you know, as with anything else, there there are antecedents and there are like intellectual threads that that have led to both that definition of anarchism to the formation that we call Nassen, and um, and really like the reason why second wave post left. Uh, non-Western anarchists have not associated with or wanted to be involved in projects like NASN is because of that definition of anarchism. Um, I guess the, f the first thing, and, and it's funny, I didn't think about this f during my first read-through, um, like I really wanted to get into the, into the weeds on the, on the actual terminology of that definition, but on second read, you know, just reading it out loud, that definition could not be more Buchanist. Right, right. I mean, right. You know, as we know, Nassen sort of began, um, th there's a story of, uh, uh, there was a couple years where there was this this conference that happened in Vermont called the Reclaiming the Anarchist Tradition Conference. Yes. And after that sort of faded from view, that's when Nassen came into existence and started doing its thing. Um, this is history of about 12 years ago or so. Um, and the people who did that Vermont conference were very much in the Buchanist tradition. And, sure. you know, obviously almost nobody uses the word Buchan out loud. Perhaps, right. Perhaps they might now that Kurdistan is uh, uh, relevant, but but by and large, you know, there was a period of time where his name was not uh, spoken out loud. But pretty much all of those definitional bullet points that I just gave are Buchanite bullet points, which uh -huh. specifically is this idea that anarchism is not as uh, necessarily about the state and capital, which, you know, if you and I were to hammer it a little bit, we probably could come up with a definition that we both agree with about opposition to the state and capitalism, but instead is trying to be affirmative 
um, by talking about um, equality and freedom. But f- to my taste, as much as I, as much as like you might be able to wiggle me into being okay with those terms, I basically mm-hmm. hate those terms. They don't mean anything. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Right. So your your so your principal or one of your 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 principal sort of objections to the I, I should mention by the way that um, I honestly don't even remember who <laughs> who wrote that. No. Right. Totally. I, I understand that. Um, and, and haven't, I, I, you know, in, until you reminded me of it, I kind of forgot that we, that, that there was even like a, a statement of that kind, but in any case, um, so, so your, um, objection here is to the, the sort of aspirational, so yeah, so the, the aspiration toward these ideals of freedom and equality. Well, on some level, on some level, I like that. Like I, I hate the, you know, the, the idea that, that anytime you define anarchism, you define it as an anti thing. Sure. And so, so on that, on that level, I'm actually okay with the idea of, of mm-hmm. defining it affirmatively. But of course I know that all, all these, these words, um, have you, have you read much Alejandro de Costa? A little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote this great essay where he uses this, uh, where he defines this term margarine words. Um, and, and marginal words, there, there've been other people who've sort of played around with it, but it's the idea of course, that, that it's a, it's a word that like, um, we, you know, we know it has no calories, but we like the taste of it. And, um, um, and of course it doesn't exactly mean anything because it's such a subject, like I, I could define equality in such a way I could accept it, but it probably would be a very different definition of equality than yours. Right. And, and so like. That's a that's a Buchanite turn because of the way in which he turned hierarchy into the mission for anarchists as opposed right. to state and capital in, right. in ecology of freedom. And and then specifically here at the end, obviously referring to um, uh, rooted in aspirations and experience of a particular working class movement, you know, that very much speaks to the political idea of prefiguration, mm-hmm. which which is, you know, in point of fact a pretty contentious topic in any anarchist circle you know, that's active nowadays. Prefiguration is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like the um, big, the biggest proponent of pre- prefiguration is Cindy Milstein, who was a direct student right. of Murray Buchan. Right. Right. Um, well, I mean, so where to, where to, where to begin? I mean, I, as I mentioned before, um, before we started here, you know, I, I've, I've been really interested in, um, for the past couple of years, um, in the intellectual history of, of anarchism, um, precisely because, um, as I as I mentioned, I kind of felt like um, I myself didn't have a, a particularly good handle on um, you know, sort of the central elements of um, anarchism as you know, just as a as a sort of an, a sort of a an intellectual sort of tradition, or as a sort of a, a um, or if nothing else, as a sort of a, a kind of a, a um, sort of sort of a, a, a pattern of sort of thinking about certain, you know, about, about certain things in certain ways. Um, but in any case, having spent a little bit of time now looking at, you know, sort of the, the, the sort of intellectual history of, of anarchism, like one of the things that, you know, I've, I've been really concerned with is not just sort of um, identifying like what appears to be this sort of the, the central concepts and ideas and beliefs and principles and all these sorts of things that um that that anarchists in, in this the first wave of anarchism or sort of classical anarchism um were working with um 
but but more importantly, like trying to figure out exactly because it's, it's it's easy to 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 to, um, to point out that you know when you look at the anarchism of the classical period that you know that that certain of these terms and concepts like freedom and equality you know um, have pride of place, um, but it's true that you know even in that context where there's a sort of a you know there's a presumption that you know that these figures were were using these terms you know univocally and that they were all on the same page intellectually and politically. Um, I'm not so sure that's the case. Um, I, 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 so you know part of what I'm trying to figure out is exactly you know what these um, these terms and these concepts and so forth that that appear to figure so prominently in classical anarchism sort of like what they actually meant um, you know what these concepts were concepts of so to speak in their original context um, and that's important because you know um, for understanding you know what anarchism was um, and what sort of motivated it but I also think it's important for you know um, bringing some clarity to the question of whether and to what extent like contemporary anarchism or or second wave anarchism more broadly like to what extent if any it's continuous with um, this earlier tradition um, and to what ex or to what extent it you know it represents an entirely sort of new um, or at least you know a significantly sort of different um, sort of um, perspective that you know, is is referred to as anarchism, but perhaps um, that that means something very different um, from from what you know that term sort of meant in the sort of classical. Period. Well, so, well let, let's not be coy. So so if we talk about the conditions that led to the revolution in Spain in the nineteen thirties, right, and you know to to the to the life ways to just you know what the entire world was like. I mean, I think it's f fair to say that the world. Prior to the igniting of the nu of the nuclear weapons in Japan, mm -hmm. was a different life than a life. Oh yeah, post sixties. And and I and l let me say, and this is an assertion on my part, but I basically think that the workers' movement, especially insofar as anarchists define it, basically had been annihilated by the end of the nineteen sixties. Um, there, yeah. there was there was still some spurts of life in the seventies, some sparks, but in the U.S. context, the sixties was the end. Right, the seventies, obviously. Right. So, so when we talk about an anarchism that is entirely the product of this post-workers' movement world, I think that that's that's a pretty different set of conditions. So, I think that using the word is is fair because anarchism right. is a pretty op pretty open word. But right. I definitely agree with you if if you were going to say that working class anarchism or the anarchism of the of the first wave that, that basically put the onus of of the social transformation on the working class clearly that that was over by the end of the of the uh spanish civil war oh yeah i mean so you know one one sort of aspect of of, of classical anarchism that um i find you know sort of, sort of really fascinating and also um incredibly frustrating at the same time um, is that although, you know, you might say like the, I'm hesitant to use this term, but the sort of the mainstream of um, the classical anarchist movement, as it had come to be by, let's say, you know, the last two or three decades of the 19th century. I mean, it was, it was very squarely um, rooted in and sort of conceived of itself in relation to like the broader international socialist movement, the workers movement and so forth. And it's, 
you know, it seems pretty obvious to me that, you know, that, that the, the sort of, of anarchisms that have sort of, you know, developed over the course of, this, of the past, say, 40, 50 years are, you know, pretty fundamentally different, right, from those sort of um, libertarian socialist strands of classical anarchism. But that being said, um, there's also a very, very interesting story to be told, I think, about, um, about anarchists or anarchistic figures, you know, from the so-called classical period who, um, you know, who, who, who didn't sort of conceive of their anarchism in, you know, in, in those terms, right? Who, so I'm thinking in particular of, you know, the, the individualist tradition, um, and there's a very interesting story to be told about how those people, those various and sundry people, sort of um, conceive of themselves in relation to this sort of broader, again, like what had kind of become a, a mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the extent to which, so I'm, so I'm thinking, of, I, I spent some time, um, a lot of time, um, a couple months ago, like trying to, to sort of school myself a bit on the Sternerite tradition, which is you know, a, a tradition that I, you know, wasn't that familiar with, or I, or at least I hadn't, you know, sort of um, delved into in a long time. And, you know, there's just these really interesting conversations, there were these interesting conversations happening, you know, at the turn of the century between people who had sort of discovered Stirner, um, perhaps somewhat belatedly, um, in the United States, um, and, you know, these other mostly um, immigrant, foreign-born um anarchists in the states who you know were much more sort of solidly grounded in this um kind they were of, anarcho-communists who are com- yes exactly um you know and and just looking at the um and trying to understand the, the 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 way these people were talking to each other and and the kind of disagreements that they were having is just super fascinating because i think that um if there is some kind of um sort of just historical sort of continuity um because I think I think it's fair to say. I mean, it's, I'm I'm not a since ever you know ever since I sort of stopped being like, I guess, you know what what most people would think of as a sort of activist. I'm not <laughs> I'm not like uh, particularly sort of um, up on um, you know sort of like the, the the you know where anarchism is sort of at as a movement or as a sort of political practice. But my sense is that like it's still the case that you know red anarchism or social anarchism or whatever is. In the United States, at least, like, um, I won't say marginal, but I just never had the impre- you know, impression that, you know, that it, it sort of spoke, you know, for most, like, self-identified American anarchists, at least since I've been involved with this whole thing. But, um, so I think that that, you know, there is a pretty clear, like, historical break as far as, um, as far as that is concerned. But I think that, you know, when you look at, sort of individualists and egoists and so forth from the classical period, um, you know, they introduced some, some, some themes some, some tropes and some, some central sort of critiques actually that, you know, against, not against, you know, other forms of anarchism actually that end up sort of like finding their way into, um, you know, various iterations of like second wave anarchist theory. So, so there is a, a sense in which like, you know, the, 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 this second, you know, what we can call second wave anarchism, you know, actually in some senses continuous, at least with the sort of the period with which we're identifying classical anarchism, if that, if that makes any sense. Right. So, 
So I don't think that even, you know, even like second wave, post-left kind of whatever, you know, those, those various sort of tendencies, I don't think that they're completely sui generis either or that they don't have any sort of antecedents prior to the 1960s or I'm not sure anybody would claim that they, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that they I don't, don't think have anyone, antecedents. Anyone would. But, but right. I will say, and I, and I, and I want to interrupt because yeah. um, by and large, I think that it's relevant to talk about the fact and and the reason why I continue to at least keep one toe in the pool of like introductory anarchist conversations is yeah. that you know if you look at at uh, right now on Facebook there's actually a a pretty vibrant and virulent strain of anarchism that's entirely inspired by Stirner, but mm-hmm. but by and large the people who participate in it um, have not that it's not just that they haven't read Stirner like Stirner is actually a deeply complex philosophical text that has really intense implications that have, that are absolutely not the topic of conversation in the, in the Sterner Facebook groups. As a matter of fact, mostly the Sterner Facebook groups are about um, moralism and sort of who's right and who's wrong in a way that, that, you know, one imagines Sterner spinning in his grave, um, uh, in 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 light of of, of that phenomenon, and, and of course, this has been true of anarchism since day one, right? Right. It's very easy to take a Emma Goldman quote or Kropotkin quote and use it to sort of spin a very half-assed, um, like, set of rules for how to live, and sure. and that's part of the question here is is like, you know, on the one hand, is anarchism a way to fight, mm-hmm. or is it a a, a a set of ethics to live in this world? Is it a tradition? Now, of course, it's all of these things, right. but but by and large, when you focus just on the traditional aspects of it, I do think that you miss out on something really important that's happening, which is that anarchism has become not just memeified, but it has become like grist for the mill for how young people can sort of, it's like young people who, used, who would read Ayn Rand and Nietzsche to understand, you know, how they should live in the world. Well, I think anarchism is now becoming another uh, uh, thing like that. Right. Right. I mean, I have to say, you know, I, so if, if, you know, if someone were to ask me like what, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, anarchism sort of ought to be, you know, or, or, or what it, what it could be now, that's, you know, I would not be able to answer that question, you know, at, at all. Right. Because, um, you know, in, in part, it's because we're talking about um, a historically bounded phenomenon, and I feel like I, and, and for that matter, a lot of people still don't really understand, um, you know, the um, the history that sort of preceded um, the anarchist history that that pre- preceded um, contemporary anarchism. Um, nor do I think you know we really understand, probably as well as we should, like how um, you know contemporary anarchism is related to these earlier iterations of what has been called anarchism. So, um, so I'm really not the, the, a particularly helpful person to talk to about contemporary anarchism, just because, um, my, my, my default position, you know, uh, these days is just one of sort of confusion and, and, um, you know, and, and a reticence to sort of make bold pronouncements about what, you know, um, you know, what anarchism could be, should be in the present. Um, you know, to well, what I've, extent it's, a, you know, it's, it, to what extent it's a, it's a, a theory that informs practice or a practice that informs theory or what, you know, or, or to what extent, 
um, anarchist politics are reflected in how one lives one's life or any of these things. <laughs> I'm really sort of trying to figure this out, you know. Well, my, my intention originally was for us to talk about the academy first because I thought it was would be the richer place. But I, I, I'm going to actually skip ahead and then hopefully we'll come back around to talking about the academy. Okay. I, I'm going to read a little bit from your um, uh, from the the top sheet of your dissertation. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I argue that anarchism and post-structuralism are distinct but fundamentally similar instructions of one and the same thing, namely political postmodernity, a rejection of representation coupled with a commitment to thinking beyond representation. And this is, um, I'm going to contrast that to a Facebook post that you made. Are you also dispirited by LBC's support of fascism, terrorism, and murder? Fear not, comrade, for LBC represents, like, five people. Yeah. That was a a stupid thing to write. Um, You know, sort of motivated by by being pissed off about something or another um, at the time. Um, Well, actually, but, but, but what you're pissed off about... And, you know, what many other people sort of who sort of share your partial understanding of a, of a body of ideas is yeah. you're pissed off about this Mexican group called the uh, Individuals Tending Towards the Wild and their apparent um, uh, murder and, and random attacks against individuals. You know, as, as many people know, ITS are sort of like modern Ted Kaczynskiists. As a matter of fact, when they started, they were explicitly uh, Kaczynskiists, and over time their their perspective has changed. And so what you're pissed about is that LBC is both perceived and kind of um, the English language, uh, we'll, we'll call them, the only English language people who are engaging with these, with these people's ideas. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, but of course, you know, what's happened because we live in the age of the internet is that in, rather than having a conversation about whether it's appropriate to uh, to talk about, you know, what people in other countries who speak other languages do, that instead we weaponize it and turn it into a conversation about, um, I guess, how, uh, how in this case, LBC, you know, is just two or three wingnuts um, drooling ov- over their keyboards uh uh, anxiously awaiting another communicate from ITS, but but um, uh, but I guess I guess you know for you the the question is how can you s- sort of s- be so cerebral on the one hand, especially when it comes to the 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 question of representation, and then on the other hand be so willing to, to turn for what motivation. Um, well, look, so I, I think, you know, probably, I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, um, one pretty fundamental area in which I take it anyway, that you and I would disagree actually concerns, um, values. You know, I'm, I'm, um, not a nihilist. I have, you know, some some pretty significant, um, objections to nihilism as I understand it, but, um, but, you know, I, um, I think that a rejection of a certain kind of, of you know, what we can call morality or moral, you know, sort of or, or moral thinking, you know, as opposed to 
say ethics, right? Um, you know, is, um, is, is consistent with, you know, affirming, um, values, um, of various sorts that's that foreground critique right um so in other words um i i um i'm somewhat somewhat flummoxed by um the sort of you know constant injunctions against moralizing um because in my experience um all too often when people talk about moralizing they mean any kind of critique that's grounded in a conception of value um, full stop. And that's mistaken. Um, I think there's a, there's a difference between moralizing in the sense of foregrounding critique and traditional problematic sort of representational modes of, sorry, you're going to have to unpack your jargon a little bit because I, I, I appreciate I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just, I'm so, you know, it, it's comes naturally to me. Um, right. So, so, from the the uh, quote that you read there, so there's this you know there's there's this important line of critique that you know that that comes out of post structuralist theory, although it obviously has antecedents in people like Nietzsche or we could say Stirner, that you know rejects you know rep- representation in the in the sort of generic sense of you know as, uh, of of sort of attempting to relegate difference to sameness or multiplicity to identity and, and so on and so forth, right? So, so basically, representation as a way of, um, of sort of, you might say, subjugating the world before ideas or something like that, right? And it's true that like traditional moral thinking in the West, right, has tended to be, um, you know, in, in, its, in its sort of standard and, and most historically significant iterations, has tended to, you know, to be based on sort of, uh, you know, very squarely on um, representational concepts. Um, and so to that extent, um, the critique of, of representation generally is a critique of what we can call morality, you know, this sort of this, tr- this way of thinking about what we should and should not do on the basis of these abstract um, totalizing concepts and whatnot. And for some people, you know, the, the rejection of like morality in the sense I just described it, you know, constitutes a rejection of value. I think that's a mistake. I think there's, I think there's, there's, so the, the distinction I drew earlier is between morality on the one hand, right, which, you know, is rooted ultimately in these um, abstractions, right, versus um, ethics, right, which is, which again, you know, just very broadly speaking, is an attempt to sort of, um, you know, think through the affirmation of values in terms of like possibilities, um, you know, uh, as, as opposed to like fixed, reified, eternal concepts, you know, so, so you might say ethics is a sort of practice of affirming values and then grounding critiques in those affirmed values and so forth. So an active and affirmative practice as opposed to morality, right? which, you know, in the traditional sense is reactive insofar as it's curtailing behavior, right, um, on the basis of these, you know, again, these, these abstract sort of life-denying ideas. So um, anyway, that's by way of saying that, you know, to, for, for me, um, you know, my anarchism and, you know, and the sort of the, the my, my critiques of 
this or that are, you know, very much grounded in a conception of value. Um, and so to that, for that reason alone, I guess I wouldn't qualify as a nihilist in some people's books, but I don't think that's moralizing. I don't think it's moralizing, at least not in the, the relevant sense of the term. So that's all by way of saying that, like, when it comes to something like, um, ITS, and I have to actually say that, you know, um, I don't know nearly as enough, of, you know, in, in fairness and in you know, and acknowledgement um, of the, the truth of what you said earlier about ITS. I don't really know nearly enough about it as I probably should. Um, certainly, I don't know enough about it to, um, you know, to, to that I should, that, you know, that, that, that I should be making these sorts of pronouncements on Facebook. But that's that's Facebook for you, I guess. But anyway, I, I will say that based upon, you know, what I think I know about it, um, you know, that I have no problem sort of saying like, well, I um, object to, you know, these, uh, the practices that, that have been associated with this group on, on a pretty, you know, pretty visceral um, level, um, morally and politically. Um, and so, you know, I have no, I have no problem sort of, you know, uh, sort of saying that, you know, certain things that people do, right, particularly in the name of this or that sort of uh, politics, um, you know, are, 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 you might say, ethically problematic insofar as they run counter to, you know, the values that I affirm, if that makes any, any sense at all. Well, actually, this ends up being, <laughs> being a great way to shoehorn our conversation back to, um, to the Academy. Uh, okay. you know, so not only are you involved in perhaps even central to the Nassen project, but you are in fact a, a professor of philosophy at Midwestern uh, State University, right? Yeah, right. And so, so in, this, in this context and for this you know, brief period of time, we're not two people talking to each other, we're two roles talking mm -hmm. to each other. Because, mm -hmm. you know, this, this might surprise you, but, but among other things, I am a publisher of mostly anarchist but radical um, uh, texts, and um, and so for me, my purpose, sort of like beyond my my individual motivation, but my purpose as a publisher is to start conversations. In other words, it's not just to to make sure that you get a widget that has a particular you know black flag on the cover, but right. is that you open that widget and and you you turn that widget into something that actually becomes part of you. And so, um, and so in this way, ITS, whether I approve or don't approve of their, of their activity, which, you know, to me is almost the, the boring part of this conversation, has raised a number of notions that I think are incredibly important notions, things that we should be discussing. Right. Specifically, this question of violence. And right. what I, like the place where I absolutely agree with ITS is that North American, meaning U.S. citizen Americans, are woefully naive when they talk in any way, shape, or form about transforming the world without having very deep and complicated and horrific conversations about the violence that would be necessary to make anything like the kind of transformations we'd like to make in this world. Uh -huh. In other words, if blue state versus red state stupidity should teach us anything, it's that Whatever change is going to happen in this world is not going to come easy, and is probably to come is probably only going to come the opposite of easy. It's going to be a right. violent bloodbath. Right. 
And you, right. know, you, you know this better than I do because you live in Texas and I live in, you know, Berkeley, California. <laughs> um, and so, and so to me, what, what is so sad about the, what ITS represents, ITS represents a, a critique of anarchist um, passivity around addressing these hard questions. And, uh -huh. in, and instead of no, American soft and gentle anarchists reflecting on that and, and thinking a little harder about it, on the one hand, you of course have eager boys who, who say, you ask violence, we say yes. So, of course, you have that happening. That's the exact same tendency that fuels Antifa. Sure. So, so, so instead, of, instead of those people sort of sitting down and being like, what, cult what culturally would have to happen for us to become more acquainted with violence? And, and, you know, of course, part of that is, like, about urban and city life. It's about, you know, the fact that I'm wearing sandals right now. Like, like it's about the fact that I'm well-fed. Like, uh -huh. like all of these conversations are complex, difficult conversations. It's a lot easier to say you killed hikers. Fuck you. Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I'm hard pressed to find anything I disagree with in that, you know, but, I mean, but I say this because this is my role as a publisher. Like my project is to, is to basically say to you what I just said in a compelling way so that you say later on, huh, I think I want to think about that a little bit more. Whereas your social role is to basically say, <clears throat> I'm actually not going to talk to you about what I believe, but my social role as a professor working for a public institution means that I'm going to frame what it is I'm going to say in the ethical language that's appropriate to do in the context of a classroom of people who are strangers and who will rat you out and all the rest. Right. And so in that way, Nathan and Aragorn aren't actually individuals we're, we're in fact playing out our social roles and so of course my my conflict with the academy isn't the fact that it's a fucking kick-ass middle-class job because i realize that it's not i realize that by and large academics are doomed proletarians just like anybody else is but that social <clears throat> but that social role has has some deep deep tendrils and by and large like especially as a you know DIY independent publisher, my social role is not actually understood or or respected in in nearly the same way that yours is. And obviously, evidence of that is that you know because I've said the provocative things that I've said in the service of these texts, you know my shit gets vandalized. I get hated by everybody. You know I'm I'm one of the most hated anarchists in North America, but mm -hmm. but but in in reverse, you are not. I think. Um I mean, look, I think that the question, I mean, because it seems like for a lot of people, the, 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 you know, the, the question of, you know, whether you guys should be, you know, publishing communiques by, you know, by ITS and all this stuff is like, it's an extension of this broader debate about, about no platforming. Um, Absolutely. Right. And, you know, and, and speaking of complicated um, discussions, um, you know, my, my general sense is that, like, um, I, I guess I understand why, um, you know, some people who are particularly really involved in anti-fascism um, you know, have been among the sort of the, the, the loudest, um, you know, critics of, of LBC on this particular score. Um, but that's just sort of a, you know, I, th I think that there's a, there's a pretty significant 
or there's a host of, of pretty significant differences between like, um, you know, opposition to sort of homegrown white supremacist movements and this sort of thing, um, on the one hand, and the extent to which, you know, um, part of the, you know, of the, of the practice of opposing those kinds of, of movements, right, is, you know, no platform. Um, I mean, that's all fine and good. I think it's a little bit more complicated when it comes to ITS. And again, this is just me acknowledging that, you know, I really don't, if I'm honest, um, know quite what I'm talking about, or at least not as much as I probably should. But, um, but you know, my sense is that the, on the one hand, you have the, you know, the pretty, pretty manifest value of facilitating the kind of conversation or conversations that you mentioned. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, you have this, this ostensive, you know, track record of people associated with, or, you know, I guess at least with the ideas of ITS, like doing or claiming to have done some pretty deplorable things, or at least things that a lot of um, us would find deplorable. And so that, you know, obviously generates a, a tension, um, you know, whereby people are, are worried that, you know, having the having the conversation to the extent that it requires the dissemination of these ideas um is lending them sort of aid and comfort um and so it's really you know it's 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 really thorny for that reason right because on the one hand you know um the the perhaps it's the case that the ideas that are motivating at least some of these um actions are you know are worth talking about uh, or need to be talked about, um, precisely because, you know, um, well, because they, um, you know, factor into this broader, you know, kind of sort of come to Jesus that we have to have regarding like what, like you said, like what would need to happen in order for genuine social transformation to take place. But, you know, so, so it's, I think people recognize, at least somebody, I, I, I'll just speak for myself. Like I recognize the value in, in trying to have that conversation. For me, it, it gets uncomfortable and thorny and difficult when it comes to like the extent to which um, people who have these ideas are already, I, I guess, presumably already sort of acting pursuant to them or their interpretation of them. And they're doing some things that I think are pretty heinous. Um, and I, and, I, and, I, and I, I worry about, you know, about, I don't know, about doing things, right, that um, would essentially make it easier for, or make it even more likely that those sorts of things will be, you know, will be perpetrated again, if that, if that makes any sense. So, um, so I'm just really kind of torn on, on this. I kind of go, I kind of go back and forth on it, you know, and well, let, I, let, I, me, days I, let me interrupt you. I totally am like, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yep. Well, I was going to interrupt you and give you some context. Cause you know, the one thing that, that, that you are doing is you're being a little, you're not using many examples. Um, to 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 make your case so so i i will make this even muddier okay. so the argument against academics is that on some level academics are managers of the system um mm -hmm. and you know that this is a, a view that society has you know seven pillars or something and you know one of those pillars would be the bureaucracy you know, another pillar would, of course, be law enforcement, and another pillar would be the academy, right? What, what are we teaching the children who are about to join the other pillars of society? 
Right. And, um, uh, and of course, you know, the Academy um, both embraces that role and has long since sort of abandoned it because the Academy has really shrunk in terms of its uh, social importance, I think, over the past 40 years. Right. Uh, uh, and disagree with me if, if, you, if, you, if you need to. But so, so partially what that looks like is that, um, you know, the Academy used to be a lot smaller in terms of its percentage of the population or whatever like like you know there's huge major universities in almost every large city in the in the, in the world or definitely right. in north america right. and that's and that's sort of not how it was supposed to be when it was designed as this sort of pillar of influence <clears throat> and so by and large that means that you know the workers inside of the academy are are precarious but but the academy itself still still grinds on right so specifically in the anarchist context though this becomes pointed when we talk about sociologists, anthropologists, and a couple other disciplines. Um, right. I, I think a lot about anthropologists, you know, because, of course, we have an anarchist that's well-known, that is an active and well-known and regarded anthropologist. And, the, and he actually represents almost all the problematics around, around being a, a, an anthropologist and an anarchist. <clears throat> right. Right. So... Yeah. So in the the reason why ITS is so has become so despised by anarchists ITS is absolutely the, the the members of ITS were anarchists there's no ifs ands or buts about it and they basically started to withdraw from anarchism in the exact same way that like anti-state communists withdraw from anarchism in big cities around the US because they have a critique of anarchism that anarchism can't address so, so I referred to it in the context of violence, but obviously it's broader than just that. But right. in Mexico City, there is this, you know, we would call an info shop, right? Called something like the Che Info Shop. It has a big, a longer name. And my understanding is that there is a central person to that project who is an academically oriented an uh, anarchist. And pro I think he's a sociologist. And so the ITS people, in the U.S. context, you could see this happening quite easily. They basically have a critique of that person and of that, that person's behavior and activities in the context of their info shop, basically saying that person is serving in, the, in a very similar role that a cop would serve, and you should do something about it. And of course, for a variety of reasons that are totally understandable, anarchists have not done anything about it and perhaps didn't even agree with the criticism to begin with. And so ITS ignited some sort of bomb essentially on the porch of the, um, uh, of the info shop. Mm -hmm. I believe in hindsight, this will be talked about in the same way that Bob Black, um, Bob Black basically put, uh, burned a pile of shit on the steps of the Process World office. At, at the time, Process World called the cops on him and turned it into a thing. But in hindsight, we see it for what I think it is, which is basically like a baby step more than a prank. Okay. So, so I think that this, the thing that ITS did will, will be seen in that, in that vein. Uh, I think it actually didn't even go off. But I also can understand from the people on the inside of the people who are associated with the Che, why they feel as though this was like, you know, a dangerous, scary attack upon them and representative of how flawed and problematic ITS is. Right. But we don't know the, com the complete complex story of this because 
because of the the barrier of language, and no one has really told the story in a in a sort of balanced way so that so that we can really understand it. Like like mostly, I know as much as I know because I pay, have tried to pay attention to it closely and have gone through the very bad translations from both sides on what happened. And so, um, and then and and the other thing, and this is a thing that I feel like a lot of people don't respect. We talk about violence in the U.S. from a very, um, I hate to use this word, but from a very privileged place. Most of us sure, have not right. experienced violence in our daily life. Right. Almost nobody in the state of Mexico can say that. Right. Right. Violence is a part of the daily life of everybody. And so what we do to each other politically in the, in the U.S. context doesn't map to the Mexican context. Right. And, and, and when North U.S. anarchists claim that it does, they're, they're basically just being um, histrionic or, or they're, they're basically like being manipulative. Uh-huh. So anyway, so I, I, I give you that just to sort of pro- uh, problematize ITS and, and speak to the fact that like one of their things that impacted the anarchist space had to do with an academic and with the role of an academic within anarchist spaces. Well, that's actually, I mean, that's a, that's a, um, a good segue, actually, because I think that, you know, a, a lot of the um, sort of sustained critiques of self-identified anarchists working in the academy um, have focused on, particularly on people in the social sciences who, whose research, who, who aren't just anarchists who happen to be sociologists or anthropologists or whatever, Right, but whose research actually focuses on, um, you know, on contemporary social movements and so on. So the the, bo- the book Direct Action by Graeber is a perfect example of this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, right, where these you know sort of these ethnographies, right, that you know, um, you know, whereby the social scientist, um, you know, sort of sort of treats treats um, political sort of you know movements. And the people involved in them, right, as you know, research subjects, and then disseminate or are willing to disseminate, you know, information that could actually end up, um, you know, being incriminating or that could otherwise, you know, um, undermine the work that people are trying to do or what have you. So, I mean, I think that you know, based on my understanding of them, I think that those those critiques, um, those kinds of critiques, against sort of like embedded social science research in social movements are totally spot on. Um, but but then again, I, I say that as somebody who's not a social scientist and doesn't do anything <laughs> that that you know re- that remotely involves you know any kind of like quantitative um, research. Um, the critique so, that does not the critique that does not does not include you is spot on. I get it. Well, there's probably other things that you can say about you know people about humanities people, right? <laughs> um, frankly, you know, and 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 and. Um, a lot of those critiques would, in turn, I think, you know, apply more generally to the sort of the, the role of the academic in society, you know, at, at, in the in the sense that you pointed out earlier, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, there isn't anything that anybody is going to say about academia and academics in anarchist circles, my guess, that I would disagree with, actually, because I, I mean, um, when people criticize, um, you know the role and the function of, of the academy and of of um, academics and so forth. I mean, 
you know, nine times out of 10, they're completely and totally um, spot on, right? Um, the, the question becomes, okay, well, you know, why do I, as a person who recognizes, you know, just how, perhaps more so than, than most, just because I'm on the inside of it, like recognizes like what a total shit show it is. Um, and that's being charitable, um, honestly. Why do I like continue to do this? Right? And, you know, I mean, and, and so, sometimes, you know, this goes beyond like a, a, a idle question to like um, the basis for like attacks on not just me, but like against anarchists who will say work in the academy, um, like, like blanket condemnations of us. And, um, and, and this is, you know, what I, what I find um, you know, pretty endearingly frustrating um, because, you know, one, one, one reason why I do what I do and why anybody does what they do is because I enjoy it, right? Um, you know, I teach philosophy. I find philosophy really interesting. I like to, you know, to um, discuss philosophy with students and yada, 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 right? Um, but I also think that um, the, the academy, unlike perhaps the other kinds of in, some institutions that you mentioned, has more sort of space within it for, um, for like detournement or something, you know, for subversion. Um, give me two uh, examples to give me two examples of that. Sure. Well, I, I have to say that what counts as an example of that really is context dependent. Right. Uh -huh. So, um, so I, I, you know, live in, um, in semi-rural North Texas, um, and teach a, uh, a struggling, um, regional uh, public university. And, um, you know, a lot of my students are first generation white students, um, as well as students of color and international students and so forth. And particularly among the, the, um, the white students, um, you know, given the, well, the, the just the, the general sort of like culture of this part of the country and so forth, right? The kind of mindsets that these guys tend to, you know, come into school with, you know, which are in many cases are product of the southern conservative evangelical kind of milieu. Um, you know, are 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 they're such that it's 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 clear to me, it's been clear to me for years that like um, that it it has never occurred to a lot of these students um, to question anything at all. <laughs> you know, ever, if for any reason, you know, because it's, because it, it, because that authoritarian sort of, well, that authoritarianism is such a sort of a deeply ingrained part of like the culture that a lot of them are sort of reared in. Hmm. Um, and, and so, I mean, it's a very, I acknowledge that it's a very like small thing in the scheme of things. Right. But, but I'd like to think that, you know, as a result of, studying some philosophy and, you know, and, and delving, you know, into, into these sorts of, you know, deep questions and issues and so forth that, um, well, actually, I, I don't even hope I've, I've seen this happen from time to time I and mean, not as much as I would, but, um, I've seen students, you know, as, as a result of that sort of, you know, process of studying philosophy, like they've, they've changed, right. Not necessarily better for better or for worse, but they have, you know, uh, they're no longer sort of like in total thrall to this authoritarian mindset. And um, what, what classes do you normally teach? 
I teach all, cause we have a, a, a very, very small program. So I pretty much like teach everything. Teach it all. <laughs> right. But, but, so, that, you know, but, so, but, but you're not, you're not teaching poetics of Foucault in the, in the context of the gay liberation movement. You're teaching survey classes about French survey classes about Germany. Oh, I mean, well, I, this intro, cl- intro classes, um, which, you know, mostly have a, you know, sort of a, a Western sort of like focus. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I mean, like, like I say, Aragorn, I, I, I've taught like everything. So I've taught 3000 level kind of stuff on Foucault and, you know, and post-structuralism and, and so forth. But, you know, those are for the crazy students that have decided to minor in philosophy or, or whatever. It's, it's mostly teaching, you know, general education classes to students who are required to take them by the state <laughs> and don't really want to be there. Um, you know, and are kind of wondering like, why do I have to take this class? You know? And so part of the, you know, part of the challenge is, is continue, you know, is con- continues to be like, you know, getting students to understand that like, regardless of the, you know, the, the policy that requires them to be in that classroom, like they, they stand to benefit from like, you know, delving into these sorts of questions. And and, and you touch 10% of them in any given class period. <laughs> if I'm lucky, I suppose. No, um, 10% seems like not bad. But, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, I, I like to think of it as kind of a, you know, a, a hyper-localized sort of politics in, in the sense that like, you know, I, I'm sort of, you know, every semester I'm sort of like struggling on a person-by-person basis to like, you know, to, to open up a little crack, you know, in that, in that edifice. And, and if I open up that crack, like I've accomplished something, right? I, I um, believe, I believe that it's a hard job. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yeah, it's super, it's super hard. And, but I guess what I'm, you know, what I'm trying to say is that like that, you know, um, makes it worthwhile for me because I feel like I'm not just, you know, uh, as a as a teacher or whatever, I'm not just doing my bit to like groom the next generation professional managerial class or whatever. Like I don't at least I don't feel like that's what I'm doing. And I try actively to sort of, you know, to, to sort of push against to push back against the extent to which I might be doing that inadvertently. How? Um Well, I mean, for example, like the you know, if you were to if you're to ask like the typical, you know, administrator or like state to, you know, state uh, higher education coordinating board person, like, well, why is it, why are students required to take three hours of humanities? You know, their answer is going to be, it's, it's going to be tied to some kind of instrumental sort of um, rationality having to do with preparing them for enter, entering the workforce. And so, um, you know, so those of us who teach history or, or philosophy or literature or whatever, like are constantly having to like justify the value of, of what we teach in these terms, right? Where it's like, oh, this helps students to develop these or that, you know, this or that uh, set of skills, right? So in my case, it's, you know, the, the, the buzzword is critical thinking, right? Like you should take philosophy classes because they will inculcate you with critical thinking skills that are absolutely essential, you know, in the job market, all these sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, I, you know, I, I am keenly aware of the extent to which like, um, students are being told by our university administration, by their advisors and so forth, that like, this is the purpose of the general education core and like why you have to take classes with professor John and all this shit. Right. Um, and so, but, it, but, it's, you, but you are 
doing that. You are teaching them critical skills. I'd like to think so, right? But what I try to, to do, um, you know, is is to sort of decouple that from this instrumental sort of capitalist rationality, right? Where Okay, how do you do where, that? Right. Well, I mean, um, precisely by, by, by raising, I mean, like raising questions about, you know, what um, the, the sort of the, the, the function or the value or the role of having these sorts of skills sort of is in the first place and why um, this university uh, or, this, or the, the state of Texas or whatever is, is trying to um, inculcate you with them. Like why does, you know, at least in, in theory, at least in, in principle. No, like, that's great. What text do you use to, to, to do that work? Like, what text do you refer to to say, here's a text that, you know, my devious mechanism is to, is to use it to demonstrate to you the instrumental logic of the system that you're part of. How, how do you, like, well, yeah, what text do you use? Oh, um, well, I mean, it, it, it varies from, um, it varies from course to course, honestly. I mean, I, you know, in like the intro classes and stuff like that, I do, um, you know, make appeal to, um, to classics once in a while, um, not because I have any kind of like, uh, you know, fawning reverence for them, but because I think in some cases, like, they're just the sort of the most effective means by which to, you know, problematize some of these, these issues, right? Um, oh, so just give, to give, give a, a give, yeah, two or three yeah, titles. Super, super basic example, right? So, um, so in, um, if, if to, to your listeners, if it's, if it's been a while since you, you, you've read Plato or ever read Plato, I'll, I'll just give you the sort of the, the, the um, flip notes thing here. So in Plato's Republic, right, which is, um, you know, is widely considered to be a sort of seminal text in, uh, Western, in the history of Western political philosophy, there's this really great, you know, and of course the, the premise of the dialogue is that Socrates is having a conversation, as he's always doing, with some folks about the nature of justice, right? They're trying to get to the bottom of what justice is, right? And so, like like, like Socrates in our lockers, you know, my students, you know, uh, come into class thinking that they know what justice is, um, or at least this is a term that they bandy about, right? So it's like one of these um, terms like freedom or equality <laughs> that, that mm -hmm. everybody sort of uses without really bothering to think about what they mean. Um, but there's this great um, exchange um, in the Republic where um, one of Socrates' interlocutors uh, a guy named Glaucon, he, he tells this story um, about a guy named Gyges who comes into possession of a magical ring of invisibility, right? So when you put it on, it makes you invisible. And the guy in the story realizes once he comes into possession of this magical ring, that when he's invisible and no one can see him, then he can obviously do whatever the hell he wants to do. Right? Sure. He, can, he can steal. He can act with, right, he can act with total impunity. And at first he sort of thinks like, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. It's wrong to do that, right? But then it occurs to the. But if no one can see me doing it, right, then no one's in a position to call me out for doing it or punishing me for it, for doing it, right? So the point of the story um, is, you know, that justice um, is simply a function of reward and punishment, right? So you know, certain society, you know. Uh, Values certain things. It encourages people to act in certain ways, and it and it it does so by rewarding people. And you know, uh, and and society tries to dissuade people from you know doing certain things by by punishing them. And so the point is, you know, it's a it's a deflation of the concept of, of of justice. Justice is just carrot and stick. 
of course, you know, Socrates wants to push back against this and, and, and present a, a loftier sort of, um, sort of ideal account of what justice is. But the point of, uh, um, of this example in the context of, of, of uh, like an intro class is that like, this is one way of thinking about justice um, that, you know, just a, a kind of a, that some people would consider to be kind of a, a, a cynical sort of view that these students have, you know, uh, they've never, they've, they've surely never encountered before precisely because they've never really thought about like what justice is. <laughs> sure. Of course. You know? Right. So, so, I mean, just, so, so, you know, just by introducing like, you know, introducing them to like, to, um, you know, contrary ways of thinking about things um, that sort of unsettle their presuppositions. Like, I think that that's, you know, valuable. I mean, I think that that's, you know, worthwhile um, in the broader context. I mean, it's, it's not a direct sort of um, boon to any kind of radical politics. It's very elementary, but like, I think I just take it for granted that, you know, no one's ever going to like be, become a radical of any, you know, of any sort, like w without having that sort of initial moment of clarity. Right. And sure. I think, I think that like how we come by that will be, you know, for, for me, it was like reading J.D. Salinger and listening to punk rock when I, was in, when I was in high school or whatever. But, you know, if it could be like, you know, in part facilitated by like, I don't know, reading Plato's Republic, like I think that that's important and, and, and valuable, right? Because I don't, I don't see very much on offer elsewhere that, you know, has what it takes to facilitate that kind of like uh, political awakening. So... So I try to be very modest about, you know, like the, ex the extent to which like I'm pitching in, but I, I don't, but I resist the idea that I'm doing nothing, if that makes sense. <laughs> so I try to keep these podcasts to about an hour and that's as a service to our listeners. And we have already leaped past the hour mark. Um, so clearly we have barely begun to disagree. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, so I apologize for that because I thought we were going to do more of that. Um, so why don't we do this again at some point in the future? And thank you very much for for sticking around and and staying civil. And uh, oh, good. thanks. I hope I didn't uh, talk talk too much. <laughs> well, I, I, th there there are some some built in things about being a professor. That's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, th thank you very much for your time. All right, thank you.